So you ready for this? You're not. Just in case you're wondering, I was going to tell you now, you're not. Uh, I don't know that I'm ready for this. Um, i just give you a heads up now. <clears throat> this is your first time here this morning. <clears throat> you may come in with some expectations of, I heard this guy's funny. I'm not. I've already admitted my wife is funny. I'm not. Ain't nobody leaving here today saying that guy was funny. I don't think anybody's going to leave here today saying, ooh, I liked that message. You may agree with it 100%, uh, but I don't think you're going to like it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't, I'm not complaining, and I'm not apologizing. You hear that, right? No apology. Um, I don't feel badly walking through this because this is God's Word. Uh, I'll be honest with you, part of me would love to skip it, which is an evidence that I should not skip it. Because what we're talking about this morning is essential. Um, I would even say what we're talking about this morning is a crisis in the church. And I'm not talking about the worldwide church. I'm talking about us. Because we're talking about something that's eternal. So let me, let me prepare you um, the best way I know how. This is the best way I know how to prepare you for what's about to happen. Okay? Uh, I use this all the time, but it's, it's real. Okay? Buckle up. Keep your hands and your feet inside the vehicle at all times. Don't think the ride is over till it's over. And don't bail out midway. You may hear a few things and your mind may start to run. Fight that. This is too important. The author of Hebrews has spent 10 chapters laying out for us over and over again the, the picture of love and mercy and grace that God is extending to us. He's reminding us over and over again there is no way for us to pay for our own sin. So Jesus has done it for us. Um, that's why the message of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. Because it doesn't matter what else you pulled up next to Jesus, it's, it's Jesus. And now the author is pleading, it's not about religion, it's not about good behavior, it's about what God has done to get to us because we cannot get to him on our own. And so that's, that's kind of the context of where our passage comes from. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read our passage, I'm going to pray, and then we'll do some explaining. All right? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. I'll start reading there. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? We know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And here is the point for the morning, verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray.
Lord, would you make these things plain to us today? Would you, um, would you remove the walls that we've thrown up? Would you reach the heart that may appear to be close to you, but is actually far away? Would you save men and women this morning? Get me out of the way. Shut my mouth when it needs to be shut. Give me boldness to say the things I need to say. Thanks for our sacrifice of sins, for sins, Jesus Christ. It's in his amazing name I pray. Amen. Glad you came to church today, aren't you? <laughs> I am, or else this would be really awkward. Um, so, so, so as you read this passage, you've got to ask a bunch of questions to try to understand it and apply it. So I think the very first thing that I want to deal with is, so who, who is this a warning for? This is obviously a warning the author of Hebrews is passing along to the Hebrew people. So who is this a warning for? Who, who, who is he... Who's he saying, or she, whoever wrote Hebrews, uh, who, who are the, who's, what are they saying? Who, who is this for? Well, it lays out a few different people. Those who deliberately go on sinning is the first description of these people. So let me make this plain. This is not somebody who struggles with sin. This isn't somebody who, 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 who stumbles every once and again. This is somebody who chooses willfully to, to return to a repeated sin over and over again. The one that the he- author of Hebrews is speaking of is actually missing that angst in the soul that a Christian will regularly feel when they fall into sin. It's, that the Christian, when they sin, is, is echoing the words of Paul in Romans where he says, the things I want to do, I can't do, and the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. I don't, that, that's, the, that's the tension and the angst in the soul of the Christian. This, this person is not that. The other descriptive term, this person has trampled on the Son of God. It's a sign of disrespect, a despising of Jesus himself. They've treated the blood of Jesus as if it was common. Like there's nothing special about his death. It's just another funeral, another grave, another dead guy. This person has insulted the spirit of grace. It's this arrogant rejection of truth. The Holy Spirit is communicating. All of these things are saying you are seeing the offer of the mercy through the death of Jesus Christ being extended to you, and you are deciding, nah, I got this on my own. And what that makes you, this text tells us, at the end of verse 27, it makes you an adversary of God, an enemy of God. Okay, so that's who it's talking about. But, but, but now, now, you read the text with me, right? And so there's, there's some language that creates a bit of a stir in this passage. Who is this really talking about? I mean, so, so some of the phrases that are used, verse 26 says these are the people who have received the knowledge of the truth. Verse 29 says these people have been sanctified through the blood of Christ. Verse 30 calls them a part of God's people. So those are some very Christianese sounding descriptions. So is this saying that a Christian is going to face this kind of judgment or runs the risk of facing this kind of judgment? <clears throat> it's important, first of all, we define what a Christian is. A Christian is not a person who has said a prayer. A Christian is not a person who has walked down an aisle. A Christian is not a, a person who's been raised in a Christian family. 
A Christian is not a person who knows theology A to Z. A Christian is somebody who has personally embraced Jesus and his death for them. So can a Christian be lost? No. We're taught elsewhere in Scripture that a Christian is adopted into the family of God, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and cannot be separated from the love and standing that they have as a child of God. But yes, these things sound pretty Christian-y. So what is happening? Let me try to help. I'm going to give us a go. What it seems to be talking about is somebody who is experienced. I'm going to, I'm, going to, I don't, I'm not sure I didn't come up with this, a phrase. Fruitless sanctification. An empty sanctification. Uh, incomplete redemption. Let, let me explain what that means. They're, they're clinging to the things of Christianity, but they're not clinging to Jesus. Hebrews has warned us now, I think, four times that this can happen. The rest of the Bible gives us illustrations of this happening. Jesus himself shares pictures of this happening. And, and the historical experience of every church that has ever existed, including Uniontown Bible Church, has shown this to happen. This fruitless sanctification, this incomplete redemption is a separation from the world that is anchored in cultural Christianity. There's this outward change of life that's motivated by external things, but it never affects the inside. Does that sound familiar at all? Jesus spoke about it in Matthew chapter 23, talking to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. So how in the world does this happen? Um, I'll explain it to you. you. You could end up visibly different, visibly sanctified, and let me explain what that word is too. It's a good Christian word. Set apart, different, other than. So you could be visibly set apart, visibly sanctified from the world, just like Old Testament Israel was. So there's this nation that is called into existence by God who, who shares these distinguishing characteristics with each other. If you're in Israel, these things were in fact true about you. The men were circumcised. They offered sacrifices. There was the Day of Atonement. There was all kinds of offerings. They had the tabernacle, the temple, the high priests, other priests. These things were in fact true about visible Israel. The problem is most of them were lost. They were visible Israel, but they weren't true Israel. You see that in the disciples. Men who left everything behind to follow Jesus. These, these 12 guys sat there and they heard the teaching of Jesus. They heard the countercultural claims he was making about religiosity of the day. They, they, they were targeted by the outside world as being those who were different than everybody else because they followed this rabbi. And yet, among the 12, there was one named Judas. He experienced everything everybody else did. The outward appearance was that he was a disciple. But in fact, he was not a true disciple. You see it in the church. <clears throat> There's this thing called the visible church. That's what this would be. When the church gathers, we are the visible church. So, so those who associate themselves with the church, they attend the church, they call it their home church, they might even be a member of the church, and yet it doesn't take us very long to find people within the visible church who are hypocrites, does it? They're a part of the visible church, but they're not part of the true church. 
We have people today who co-opt Christianity for their own personal advancement. Just in case you don't know what co-opt means. It means to take possession of something for your own purposes. So we have people who are co-opting Christianity for their own personal advancement, and some of it is quite cynical. And, 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 and I have nobody in mind when I say this, so until I get to the last one, then I might have a few people in mind. But the first ones, I don't. <laughs> There are people who try to co-opt Christianity for financial reasons. Those are not pastors, by the way. Those are people, I'll just, I'll call up spade, spade. We have people who come and they'll start attending for two or three weeks and they want a meeting and they want to meet with us and they want a pastoral staff to sign off on a health insurance form so they qualify for a certain health insurance because they attend a church. We have people who attend a church, not ours, we have people who attend church so they get a discount on their school bill. That's co-opting Christianity for your financial gain. Some people co-opt Christianity to impress other people. Maybe it's that girl you're dating. Hey, girl, if he's never been in church before, but suddenly he shows up, walk away. Maybe it's the boss. Maybe it's the neighbor. Maybe you just need this on your college application. Some people co-opt Christianity for types of leniency. It looks good on a court report. And some co-opt Christianity politically. They adopt the words, the actions, the symbols of Christianity in order to gain personally. That's local, that's state, that's national. What they're doing is they're seeing Christianity as a way to advance themselves. And if it was just that, it'd be really easy for us to look at this passage and know exactly how angry we should be at them. They are literally trampling the body of Jesus Christ, disrespecting him in such a way that they might as well just spit on his grave because the death really doesn't matter anyway. And so what they're doing is taking the things that are precious in God's sight and using them for their own personal gain. But... Those aren't the ones I'm worried about today. Because there are some people who aren't uh, as intentional about this. Instead, they're, they're simply drawn to the beauty of belonging. Part of something that's so different from the world a, a church is, or at least it should be, attractive. And so there's many of you sitting here this morning who aren't trying to advance yourself. You're here because you like it. And that's okay. But you run a particular danger here. Because you're being exposed to truth Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday within the Scripture, in the prayer, in the singing, in the preaching, and in the teaching. And and said, as you are sitting there, what you are doing is in fact what Hebrews is talking about. You are receiving the truth, experiencing it. You're being exposed to it. It doesn't mean you've internalized it. And then all of those different things have this impact. It's an inevitable impact. So while you're here, not only are you experiencing truth, you're you're also experiencing the grace of God being poured out in the lives of true believers around you. And as the grace of God pours into the lives of true believers, God is so very good to true believers that that grace overflows out of their life and affects the people around them. And so you're here and you're experiencing the grace of God that's being poured into somebody else's life for yourself. And the longer you're here, it can begin to shape you. 
It can begin to, to guide you in the choices that you make. Your relationships are different. You're hanging out with different people. You're hearing different things, different influences, different, different peer pressure. And those are good things, really good things. But that's what makes this so difficult. Because while you have not outwardly rejected Jesus, you've rejected Jesus nonetheless. You're clinging to Christianity and not Jesus. You're a part of the crowd that's talked about in Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Verse 31 is warning you. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For the one who's rejected Jesus, whether it be aggressively, passively, out loud, or in silence, there is a judgment, there is a furious fire that consumes, that swallows up forever. The vengeance of God will be poured out in his righteous justice against those who have rejected the one chance for forgiveness, Jesus in your place. If you've rejected the only acceptable payment for your sin, I don't care if you call yourself an atheist and you've done it. I don't care if you call yourself an agnostic and you've done it. I don't care if you call yourself a, a, a nun, a non-religious, well, not a nun, different nun, N-O-N-E, there we go. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're non-religious or if you call yourself a Christian. If you've, if you've rejected the only acceptable payment for your sin, you're going to face dreadful judgment. Um, so I'll be, I'll be really honest. One of the things that gives me pause about walking through this with you is simply because um, I've been in situations where hell has been talked about and it has been used to manipulate the people who are sitting in the room. I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to beg you. I'm just going to deliver the news. And the news isn't good. The news is spelled out in Scripture. No matter how uncomfortable it might be, hell is real. Um... I would love if hell didn't exist. But it does. So I'm going I'm to run through some, some verses pretty quick here. Christian, my, my uh, remote just died on me. Go figure right now. So let's, let's, go, let's run through these. Ready? First one, Revelation chapter 14, 11. The smoke of their torment will go up forever. There is no rest day and night. It talks about a place of torment and a place without relief. Second Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 talks with vengeance, with flaming fire. He takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God, those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence. Not only is it flaming fire, it is eternal. Matthew 8, 12, the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 3, 12, the chaff he will burn with a fire that never goes out. Daniel 12, 2, many who sleep in the dust of the earth are going to awake, some to eternal life, and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Luke 16, he looked up and he saw Abraham a far, long way off and Lazarus at his side and, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus just to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. It is a place of relentless torment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell is a horrible place. Let me, let me help you with something, too. It's worse than you can possibly imagine. And here's why I say that. 
Those verses, those references, those descriptors of what hell is like is that minimum what hell is like. There is actually a chance, and you've got to hear me all the way through on this one, okay, before you start throwing things. There's actually a chance that some of those descriptive terms talking about hell are actually not literal but symbolic. Not all of them. Hell is a literal place. But there are some of those symbols, that, some of those descriptors that could be symbolic. What? Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's not good news. That's not relief for anybody. Because the authors of apocalyptic literature, if they couldn't describe the, the horror that they were seeing, they would just grab something that people would be familiar with. So the chances are good that the symbols being used pale in comparison to how horrible it is. Jesus taught on hell more than all of the other New Testament authors combined. And, and, and every time I think about hell, this, this verse is the one that comes to mind. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says this to them. Don't fear those who kill the body and are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is why that stands out to me. Jesus is talking to a group of men who are going to end up facing torture, being sawn in half. They're they're, they're going to be skinned alive, burned at the stake, and Jesus says, don't worry about that. Hell is so much worse. That's why our author... Verse 28 uses the illustration, anybody who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more will the person be punished who, does, who, who tramples on the Son of God? He's using that comparative. How much worse is it going to be if you disregard God's clear plan for forgiveness if you decide to reject Jesus, whether it be aggressively or passively? I don't have time to go through all the, the arguments, but let me hit this one. But I haven't murdered anybody, Frank. I haven't been unfaithful to my spouse. I haven't cheated on my taxes. I've I've actually tried my best to be a good neighbor. I've invested my finances in serving the poor. I'm doing the best I can, and that's, that's fine. It's not about how much you've sinned or how bad the sin is. It's about the nature of the one you have sinned against. We, we, we do this already in our own relationships, just a goofy picture maybe. If I'm sitting at the, the dinner table with my kids and my, my kid uh, yells at another kid at the table, shut up! I'm going to be like, hey, come on, knock it off, right? But if that kid looks at me after I tell him to knock it off and goes, shut up, dad! Oh. Right? Yeah, that, that, that kid's going Amish for months. <laughs> so, <laughs> Why? Why is there such a distinguishing moment? Because there's different authority is given different weight. A stern look versus punishment. So what do you think is going to happen if you say shut up to God's grace and mercy? God is not an infinite being you've offended a single time. He is eternal, perfect, He's of infinite value, infinite worth, and so our sin against him is infinite. It is not small. Our sin is going to receive just punishment. That's what this is saying. But God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18.32 says, I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God so Repent and live. 
He finds no satisfaction in those who, who choose hell over him. On the contrary, the most famous verses in Scripture, John 3, 16 and 17, tell us that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In, in God's infinite grace and mercy, he has demonstrated a love for you by God in flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming and offering himself as your substitute to bear the weight of justice for you. So how are we supposed to respond? Hell should make you tremble before the weight of his majesty. It should shock you and how righteous and holy God is. And then, believer, it should cause you to weep with gratitude that God has provided a way of escape. So, I, I, I don't know. If you're here your first time or not, it doesn't matter. You have the knowledge of truth being thrown at you from Scripture. You're a sinner. Jesus is the only sacrifice for sin that is effective. And, and, the, and, the, and please understand this, and if you come back, you'll hear this. The gospel is way more beautiful than just avoiding hell. But the question today is this. Have you embraced Jesus? Or have you embraced a lifestyle? This is for everybody. I don't care if you're a member. I don't care if you've been coming to Uniontown for 32 years. I don't care if you're a staff member. Are you holding on to Jesus? Don't trample on the Son of God. Don't treat his shed blood for you with scorn. Don't despise the spirit of grace that is moving among people. In this moment, repent. Yield to him. Receive the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Jesus. Surrender your heart to Jesus. Receive the gift of salvation that he is offering And do it now. Because it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Can we pray? Just in the quiet of the moment, just reflect on your own heart, your own relationship with Christ, and where that stands. In a moment, we're going to sing, and um, there'll be folks available back at our prayer corner. I promise you the most important thing that we can focus on today is you having a conversation with somebody Embracing Jesus, yielding yourself to him and his finished work on the cross. Maybe you're, you're sitting here this morning and you know already that you need to do that. And so, so listen, the, the prayer is not magical. There's no, no great mantra to say, but I just want to put it in easy words for you. It might even sound like this, from the, your heart to God's ears, 
God, I, I, I need to be saved. I am a sinner. Jesus is Lord. I am not. So I surrender to Jesus right now. I ask you to be my Savior. Pay for my sin, please. Make my relationship with God right again. As we sing, if you've just prayed that or you need to ask somebody some questions, I want to invite you to go back to that prayer corner and have conversations. Today is the day of salvation. Today's the day. Father, please again, I pray, you would make this plain on our hearts. I pray that you would win people to yourself. There's some people, I wish I could push a button, Lord. (laughs) Your spirit is pursuing these people. I pray that they would yield. And for those of us who have been rescued from the hellfire, we thank you and we can't begin to praise you enough for what you've done. So may our lives reflect this moment of worship that we're going to offer to you. May it, may it last long beyond this song is done. As we give you our gratitude and our thanks, may we give you a life of worship. It's in the name of our matchless Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Would you stand as we close our time together?